0: For those of you who were here last week, I hear that um, Bill Allison did a, a wonderful job, and um, I'm grateful for his uh, his filling in here and, and bringing a good message for you guys. If you, I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, and I, but I encourage all of you, likewise, if you weren't here last week, uh, to to get a copy of the message from Bill Allison off the the website, or you can get CDs from the back. Just give it a listen. Um, he's a great teacher, very energetic guy, and uh, I know that he brought a good good word for us last week. Um, we did have a good vacation, and again, I thank you for your support for us as we went and got some time off. Um, we've been talking here the last few weeks about news. I'm talking about the good news, the good news of the gospel, and uh, you know, I just want to remind you that that when you talk about news, that there's different kinds of news, and I'm not strictly speaking here of like good news, bad news. Uh, don't worry, I'm not going to tell like a bad joke or anything here. Um, only good jokes from this pulpit, right? Uh, no, uh, it's, I'm not just talking about good news, bad news. Uh, there's different kinds of news uh, in terms of how you respond to it. Uh, some news doesn't require a response, but other news does require a response. I did a little more headline gathering this week and found some news that falls into the different categories. Uh, one of the first headlines that just jumped out to me this week uh, is from the USA Today, uh, and here it is. It says, Superheroes are hot and claustrophobic in costumes. It's just grab my attention, this is, this is news, this is in the newspaper, a national newspaper, superheroes are hot and claustrophobic in their costumes, of course this scintillating article about how superheroes are hot and claustrophobic in their costumes, these people in the movies, they're not very comfortable, poor um, them. Uh, so this, that, that sort of news, you might gather, is the sort of news that doesn't require a response. You don't have to do anything with that, there's no call on your life, there's no action required, it really is no relevance to you whatsoever. Okay. There's other news that might require more of a response. Another headline was uh, a 30-year mortgage rate drops to another record low. Now, that one might have some interest to you if you're someone who is uh, owning a home or considering buying a home or refinancing. uh, That might be something that you think, oh, I could take some action in regards to that news. Uh, You you don't have to respond, not life or death. Um, Maybe you've got a decent rate already. You don't want to go through the hassle. Uh, you, just, you just don't care, but, but for some of you, maybe it's something that you think, yeah, I, I could possibly respond to that. That's in the category of that's interesting, possibly beneficial. Maybe someday I'll do something about that. Okay, but then there's also the sort of news, sort of life or death news that you have to respond to. Um, sometimes the headlines are more dramatic. Now, now, this is not a true headline, but just imagine if this were. Uh, we've spotted a tornado five miles away from here, and it's headed this direction. Now, that's the sort of news that you've got to do something about. Okay, again, that's not true. That's not happening. But if it were, we should pack it up right here. We should head to the basement because the most important thing in that moment is to respond to that life or death news. The tornado is coming. You don't just file that way in interesting or, or maybe I'll do something about that later. It's news that requires an immediate response. Okay, so you see news, it's got a spectrum of a possible responses or non-responses. And we've been talking about news this last few weeks, the good news of the gospel. And I just want you to question for yourselves, where does that fall in that spectrum of kinds of news? Um, is is the gospel, is the good news about Jesus uh, the sort of news that you'd file away with celebrity gossip? So that's kind of interesting, has no relevance to me. Is it the sort of news that you think, well that's Sounds like a good idea, maybe beneficial sometime, I might look into that. Or is it life and death news? You say, I need to respond to that right now. Let me remind you what that news is. The news begins with God. God is glorious. He is holy. He is perfect. He is far beyond anything that we can imagine. He is the one who existed before anything else existed. And he made the whole world, and he made you and me for himself. When he created humanity, he made us to be glorious like him. He made us to bear his image, to be little versions of him walking around this world, displaying his glory to one another and reflecting it back to him in the way that we love, in the way that we create, in the way that we serve and rule over creation. Uh, But we messed it up, right? Right? God said to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, he said, Don't eat from this one tree. If you do, then you will surely die. And Adam and Eve ate from that tree, and God said, You will surely die. Um, Adam and Eve started the ball rolling in their rebellion against God, and we picked it up, and we carried it, and we continue to rebel against God. To say, We're going to live life our own way. We're going to follow our own desires. We're going to reject you, Lord, and that is sin. Because of our sins, we experience consequences. We are alienated from God. That relationship that we were created to have with him, we've broken that. And we experience real consequences of that. We're objectively guilty. So God and his justice demands that we die. So I told you if you sinned you would die, you sinned and now you're going to die. But the good news about Jesus is that Jesus has offered himself as a substitute to die in our place. Remember, God in his justice says, You've sinned, you're going to die. But he also, in his mercy, from the very beginning, from Genesis 4, right after the first sin, God said, I'll accept a substitute for you. Remember, this is the point of the whole system of Old Testament sacrifice. That God said to the, to the Israelites, You've got to offer sacrifices to cover for your sins. And in that sacrifice, God was reminding us that he is just. That is, if you sin, something's got to die, there's a penalty. He was also merciful. He was saying that instead of you dying as a human for your sin, he'll accept a sacrifice, an animal on your behalf. Now, of course, it's impossible for the blood of animals to effectively take away our sins, and so all of that Old Testament sacrificial system was leading up to Jesus, where Jesus offered himself as the once-for-all sacrifice for our sins. So he was a human. He could be an effective substitute for other humans, But he was more than just one person, because only one man could pay for another man. But he's more than just one person in his value. He's also God, so he's infinite in worth. And so he offered himself as the infinite God man, his one death, paying the penalty for all sin. And the good news is that he offers that salvation, that forgiveness of sins, as a substitute for everyone who believes. See, this is the news. So I'll ask again, what kind of news is this? Is that the sort of news where you sit there and you hear that and you think that's interesting? No relevance to my life, but it's interesting to know. Is it sort of a news where you think that's that's maybe something that I should do something about somewhere down the line? Or is it life and death news, the sort of news on par with a tornado that's coming or a flash flood, and you've got to do something now, or you're in trouble. Let's let's see what the Bible has to say. Um, I'd like to start in John chapter 3. This is another sort of unusual sermon, and I'm not camping out in one particular passage, but jumping around a lot. So if you can't follow along, just feel free to write down the references, look them up later, or get a copy of the message and listen to it again. I'm going to start in John chapter 3, verse 36. Here's what he says about the gospel. It says whoever believes in the son has eternal life whoever does not obey the son shall not see life but the wrath of god remains on him it says whoever believes in the son has eternal life whoever does not obey the son shall not see life but the wrath of god remains on him the main thing that i want everyone to see here is that there's two kinds of people in the world okay there's there's two categories your first category is that those who believe in the son of god those who believe in Jesus, those who have accepted the gospel, those people have eternal life. But if you're not in that category, do you see what it says in the second half of this verse? Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. See, this tells us that the news, the good news of the gospel, is in the category of life or death news. It's the sort of news that's in the same category as a tornado is bearing down on you Uh, It's five miles away, it's coming, if you don't act, you're in trouble. See, if if you haven't responded to the gospel, what does John's gospel say? He says, the wrath of God remains on you. See, the great news is that Jesus has died, he's offered himself as a sacrifice to pay for the sins of the world, but it's not automatic. Just because Jesus has died does not mean that you're okay. You still have to respond to the gospel in some way so that the wrath of God no longer remains on you, but that substitute of Jesus becomes a substitute for you personally. The gospel needs to be applied to each individual heart. Now, the really great news is you don't have to do anything to qualify. You don't have to earn it there's not some sort of standard where, where God says, okay, Jesus died for you. Now you need to prove that you're worth it. Now hear, hear what, what the gospel says, Romans six twenty three. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You get that? There's, there's wages and there's the gift. The wages of sin is death. What you earn with the lifestyle that you live of sin, rebellion of God, what you earn is death. But what God offers as a free gift is eternal life. Okay, but here's the thing with gifts. You've got to accept them. Right? I mean, You've all celebrated Christmas. You've all had the gifts sitting under the tree. Maybe someone's even taken the gift from under the tree and they put it in your lap and they said, this is for you. What do you do next? You open it. You open it. The gift's not really yours. The, the benefit of the gift is not really yours until you open up the gift and you see what's inside and you take it for yourself and you say, thank you for the gift. This, I accept the gift. Someone can, can and offer you a gift, but if you straight on him, if you reject the gift, you, it's not yours. So, so the key question then for all of us in this life or death issue of the gospel of Jesus Christ is, he's offering you the gift. Have you accepted it? H- how do you accept it? As you read through the Bible, you see that the answer is very consistent. The answer the Bible gives us to the question, how do you accept the gift? How do you respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Very consistent. There's two things that you do. Two things that are really one thing. So you repent and you believe in the gospel. Now, this is just the language of Jesus. As he began his ministry in Mark... Chapter 1, Mark 115, he goes around, he announces, here's what he says, he says, repent and believe in the gospel. These two things, repentance and belief, or repentance and faith. This is what you see is is repeated over and over again in the New Testament when people encounter the gospel. This is the response that is expected, repentance and faith. It sounds like two things, but they're really one thing. It's like two sides of the same coin, uh, just brief definitions. Repentance is a turning from sin, and faith or belief is turning to God. Okay, so you, you're, you're turning from sin and you're turning to God. It's two aspects of the same movement. You can think of, like, if you're, you're staring into a dark closet and you've got a sun shining through the window behind you. Well, if you turn, you make one turn from the closet to the light, you've made one movement. But you've you've turned from one thing to another thing. That's what repentance and faith are. Repentance is turning from sin, and faith is turning to God. Now, because this is literally a a life and death issue, I want to give a little more investigation into those two terms. Um, I want to define those terms so that we really understand what does it mean to repent. And what does it mean to believe in the gospel so that we can all make sure that we have truly done that and so that we can be helpful to others in make, helping them to make sure that they've truly done that. Because this is what the Bible requires. This is what God requires when he says, I want you to accept this gift of eternal life. There's got to be repentance. There's got to be belief. All right, first, let's look at Repentance. The first part of our response is to repent. Um, repentance, I've already told you, it's a turning. Another word, or a little word picture that's helpful is to think of it as a U-turn. Okay? A U-turn, it's a change in direction. Um, Acts 26 is the next place I want to go. It, it gives us a definition of repentance, just so you know that I'm not making this up. This is what the Bible says repentance is. Uh, in Acts 26, Paul is giving his defense before Agrippa. He's explaining his testimony saying this is what happened, here's the commission I got from God. He's explaining in Acts 26, uh, starting in verse 16, what Jesus said to him. And Jesus says in Acts 26, 16, But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, and here's the key part, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So Paul's saying, here's the me- here's the mission I got from God to go and tell people, turn from darkness to light. Turn from Satan to God. Then Paul goes on to explain to Agrippa. He says, "Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to this heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, here it is, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds and keeping at their repentance. See the key connections there? Back in verse 17 and and, uh, and 18, in 18 he says, here, here's the, my, my, my message. I'm telling you to turn from darkness to light, turn from the power of Satan to God. Verse 19, Paul says, I was not disobedient to that. That's what I did. And then he explains it differently in verse 20. I told them that they should repent and turn to God. He's giving us their definition of repentance. Repentance is turning from darkness to light. It's turning from Satan to God. It's making a U-turn in your life. Um, now in, a, in, a, in an Ill- illustration sort of way, I, I had to repent this last weekend on vacation. Uh, we, we made it to our state park and we pulled into the, um, the ranger's office, what do we call it? We got our directions there as to how to get to the camp. We pulled out of the ranger's office, and I told Jen, all right, turn right. So we turned right. A little while later, we were leaving the camp. And so I had to repent. And so I said, you know, this is, we're going the wrong direction. So what did we do we do? We stopped, we turned the car around, and we drove back in the right direction. Okay, that's what repentance is it's a U turn, it's a recognition that you're going in the wrong direction, and so you stop. And you turn around, you begin going in the right direction. Now, if you just start reading through the New Testament, even the Old Testament too, as people encounter God, as people encounter the gospel and have a true conversion experience, you see this sort of U-turn repentance in their lives. The Apostle Paul is a great example. Uh, Acts chapter 9, you read about this man. He He was called Saul. He was persecuting the church. He was opposed to God. He was an enemy of the Lord, throwing Christians into jail, trying to destroy this new movement. He encounters Jesus, and what happens? makes a dramatic U-turn, a dramatic change. Now he becomes the leader of the Christians, one who is taking the gospel and suffering for it throughout the world. Acts chapter 19, you get another story about believers in Ephesus. This was a town that was dominated by, um, by witchcraft and idolatry. People were deeply involved in this dark magic sort of stuff. When the gospel came in, believers realized that that was wrong. And, and Acts 19 tells us they brought all of their magic scrolls, all, the, all the, the stuff that they'd accumulated over time with their spells and their witchcraft, and they put it in a big pile and they burned it. They said so the value of it was 50,000 pieces of silver, just a, an astronomical sum. They encountered the gospel and they made a U-turn. Or you remember Zacchaeus, right? The wee little man. The wee little man was he. He climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see, and as the Savior passed on by, he looked up in the tree and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm going to your house today. Luke 19, in the children's song. You know, Zacchaeus was a tax collector. He was a, um, a legalized extortionist. He was a guy who took money from his countrymen to support the occupying force and skimmed some off the top for himself. Jesus shows up in his life and he says, I love you. I'm going to go eat in your house. And Zacchaeus, in response to that encounter with grace, and to to that encounter with the gospel, uh, he, he says spontaneously, Lord, I give half of everything I own to the poor. And I'm going to take everything that I've cheated somebody from and I'm going to pay them back four times. That's Luke 19. That's an example of repentance. A drastic change in direction because of encounter with the gospel. See, this is an essential part of the gospel message. Repentance. Recognizing that apart from Christ, you are going in the wrong direction. You're trying to be your own master, captain of your own destiny. It may take a lot of different forms. I, I don't know in your life, um, historically, what it looked like for you, or maybe what it looks like for you right now. Um, But you know. I don't know what you're chasing after instead of God. But if you're not chasing after God, you're going in the wrong direction. And the first thing you need to do is stop and turn around and start going in the right direction. You know, it may be that you're chasing after um, money. Maybe you're chasing after the approval of others. Maybe you're chasing after pleasure or just having the right family finding the right boyfriend or girlfriend or maybe you're just chasing after your own independence and, and you just want to be in charge of your own life. But if you're chasing after anything besides God, then the first thing that you do when you encounter the gospel is that you stop, you acknowledge to yourself that this is wrong and then you acknowledge to God and you say to the Lord, I repent. I repent of of chasing after these idols. I repent of chasing after um, my own selfish desires. I repent of trying to be my own king and master and not submitting to your lordship. I repent. Now, to be very clear, I'm not saying then that once you repent that you no longer sin. Okay, I'm not saying that to, to become a Christian, you've got to have this watershed moment where you repent and all of a sudden you never sin again. Okay, if that were true, then none of us would be truly saved. But the key thing is that when you repent, you make a change in direction. Right? When, when we were lost at the campground, when we repented, we were pretty far away from where we were supposed to be. But if we would kept going in the same direction, we would have kept getting farther and farther away. But in repentance, you stop, you recognize I'm going the wrong direction, you turn around, and then from that moment on, you keep getting closer and closer to where you're supposed to be. It's the beauty of the U-turn. To think of it another way, you can think of repentance as a decisive moment when you change sides. You say, I'm no longer in the kingdom of darkness. I'm no longer serving myself and serving my sin, but now I'm serving the Lord. Uh, There's a wonderful quote from an old Puritan named William Arnaud. Try Try to follow along here. He says, The difference between an unconverted and a converted man is not that the one has sins and the other has none, but that the one takes part with his cherished sins against a dreaded God, and the other takes part with a reconciled God against his hated sins. Okay, I'll say that one more time. So the difference between an unconverted man and a converted man is not that the one has sins and the other has none. It's that the one, the unconverted man, takes part with his cherished sins against a dreaded God. But the other, the converted man, the one who's changed sides, takes part with his reconciled God against his hated sins. See, there's a change, a real change that happens when you have saving faith. When you repent, you are now reconciled to God and devoting your life to fight against your hated sins. That's the first move in the gospel, the turning from sin. But of course, a turning from sin is also a turning to God. And so we see the second thing is to believe in the gospel. I'm going to go back to John chapter 20 now for this one. What does it mean to believe? John chapter 20, verse 31, he gives us the purpose statement for his book. He says, here's why I wrote my gospel. He says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Uh, Now I see two parts to that statement, separated by the and. First one is he says, you need to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So there's certain facts that you need to believe if you're going to be a Christian. There's there's a bare minimum of content that you've got to agree to, just in your mind, just intellectually say yes, I believe that that's true. You know, he's saying that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He's saying there's you got to believe this story about Jesus that I wrote for you. You know, believe that Jesus was born, that he lived this perfect life, that he died on the cross as a substitute for our sins, that he rose from the dead on the 3rd day, that he ascended into heaven, where he sits at the right hand of God, and he'll return one day to judge the world. You know, standard uh, Apostles' Creed sort of stuff. Just the basic message about Jesus. You've got to believe those facts. If you don't believe those facts, then you're not really believing in Jesus. You're believing in something that you've made up. But if you're going to be saved, you've got to believe those facts. And yet, believing facts intellectually is not saving faith. James chapter 2, verse 19 He says, you believe that God is one? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. James is reminding us that the demons intellectually can ascribe to those things I just said. Demons are aware, they're well aware that Jesus lived and died and rose from the dead, is at the Father's right hand and will return one day to judge. You, You can believe those things intellectually and yet not be saved. How does John 20, 31 continue? It says, by believing you may have life in his name. He's saying you don't don't get eternal life just by believing facts about Jesus. You get eternal life when you believe in him for life. When you you come to him and you say, those facts, those, those things, I accept those for myself. See, I'm not just agreeing to a set of propositions, but I'm acknowledging that I'm desperate and I need a substitute and I want that for myself by believing you come to him for life in his name. I really love the picture that Jesus uses in John six, where he says, I'm the bread of life. This is John six thirty five. I'm the bread of life, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Of course, Jesus isn't talking about literal hunger and thirst there, as if you, when you become a Christian, all of a sudden you have to stop eating and drinking because you don't need it anymore. He's talking about spiritual hunger, spiritual thirst. Jesus is saying, are you hungry? Are you, are you thirsty in your soul? Do you, do you feel the burden of your sin? Do you feel the weight, the hopelessness of trying to save yourself? Are you worn out from looking all over this world trying to find satisfaction in all these other things? If that's true, then come to me. Come to me for life. Are you hungry and thirsty? Come to me. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. See, saving faith is, is that, that moment when you recognize that you are hungry and you are thirsty and nothing else in the world will satisfy except Jesus And you come to him because you want life. Now, this is very different. Again, I want to be clear. This is very different, I fear, from what many people in our culture will do. Where they will pray a prayer with someone sometime, or they will walk an aisle sometime, and then they will never have anything else to do with Jesus for the rest of their life. And they will think, I'm good. I'm good, All right. I, I just have, you're just supposed to have faith, right? I believed, I prayed that one time, I'm covered. I got my fire insurance. There are a lot of these so-called Christians around. But I fear that they have not truly come to Jesus for life. People who may have prayed a prayer at some point, had a, quote, conversion experience, And yet there's no signs in their life that they have a real belief in Christ. There's no love for God. There's no hunger for Jesus. There's no desire to read the word. There's no prayer life. They haven't been to church in 40 years. I'm not saying those things save you. But if Jesus is really your Savior, if you've come to him for life and not merely for a transaction, some sort of covering to get you out of hell free card, then you would would spend time with him. You would love him. You would desire to talk about him. You would come to him for life, day after day after day. And if I see someone who does not have that sort of vibrancy, that sort of love for Christ, it makes me question whether they ever have, or whether they are fooling themselves with some sort of um, you know I I I was a kid in Sunday school when I was five years old, and my Sunday school teacher prayed with me. And you're relying on that for your salvation? Look, you can get a five-year-old kid to do lots of stuff. I wouldn't bank your eternal soul on the fact that you made a transaction at some point in your history when you can't look in your heart and say that you have any love for God right now. See, true faith, saving faith, is a faith that comes to Jesus for life, that sees him as a treasure that is worth more than anything else in the world and says, if I have to lose everything else to come to Christ, I will do that because he is worth it. Salvation is a free gift, but you respond to it with repentance and faith. So the good news of Jesus Christ demands a response. It demands a response. And the response that you see as you read through the New Testament over and over again is these two things that are one thing. A repentance, a true turning from sin and faith. A true turning to God for life. That's how you accept it. Now those, those things are in a category by themselves. That's how you accept the gift. But, as you read through the New Testament, you see again and again, inevitably, something, a, a next step that is coupled with those two things. Um, a next step that does not save you, but is the natural, inevitable response to repentance and faith. So the third part of our response is to be baptized. I don't want to ignore baptism. I couldn't ignore it. I was reading through Acts and John and Romans and James this week, just trying to soak in what does God require of us when we uh, believe the gospel. And what you see over and over and over again is that as soon as people repent and believe, they get baptized. It shouldn't surprise us. That's what Jesus told the disciples to do in Matthew 28. The Great Commission, he says, "...go out into all the nations, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit." Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. That's that's what you're supposed to do, and that's what the disciples do in Acts. You read through; people believe. What do I do to be saved? They say, repent, believe the gospel, and then, can I get baptized? Everybody, the Ethiopian eunuch, the Philippian jailer, Lydia, everybody, when they believe, they get baptized. Now, why do you do that? You know, again, a fear that I have is I feel like, as evangelicals, people who love the good news. We've emphasized so much that baptism does not save you, which is true. That we've marginalized it and said, so, therefore, it's not necessary. Therefore, it's not good. Therefore, it's not worthwhile. And you've got to do some pretty big mental gymnastics to ignore all the clear commands in Scripture to be baptized. So why would God say that that's important? Well, it's really quite simple. When you repent and believe if you're just by yourself, if, you, if you've just done it on your own, uh, this, this little thing, maybe you prayed a prayer, and I'm not knocking that. That's how it happens a lot of times. You pray a prayer or you, you make some response. You just do that by yourself. Uh, you can easily, uh, a few days after that, question whether that really happened. Uh, or, or just you know a few weeks after that, say oh, that wasn't really that big a big deal. And, and you just kind of leave it in the past as if it wasn't a significant event. Or you, or you get plagued by doubts and you think, did I do it right? I don't know. And God says, here, I've given you the gift of baptism. What what you're supposed to do is when you respond in repentance and faith, you go talk to somebody about it. Talk to somebody in the church. You say, I've done this. And they say, great, let's get baptized. You say, what's baptism? You say, baptism is a sign of what you've just done. It's a public renunciation of your sin. It's you saying, that was my old life. Here's my new life. You get the gift of someone else coming alongside of you and saying, let's talk about what you just did. And, And they get incorporated into the life of the church baptism is something the church does and so now all of a sudden you're not just an individual on your own who's prayed and is left to to wither on your own but now you're being incorporated in the church and the church says "Uh, we've baptized you we've welcomed you as a member we're going to help you grow see it's a gift of God where he says here's this spiritual thing that's going on this repentance and faith let me give you a physical thing as a sign of what you've just done I want to close by talking to two categories of, of folks, at least. Um, the first is, you know, for anybody here for whom this is falling on you as, as new news today. Um, I don't know all your hearts. I don't know what God has or hasn't done in your heart yet. It's possible that there is someone sitting here today, or multiple people, who are, are hearing for the first time, what God really expects of you to receive the gift of salvation. Maybe you never understood about repentance before. Um, Maybe you thought that saying some sort of rote prayer was what God expected of you to get saved. And maybe you're feeling that weight of conviction from the Holy Spirit right now to say, I've never truly repented of my sin. I've never really turned to Jesus for life. I've just been going through the motions. If that's you today, then hear this. This is life or death news for you. I will be here after the service. I will talk to you. I'm sure you know plenty of other people that you could talk to, too, where we can help you to walk through that and understand what it means for you to repent and what it would look like for you to put your faith in Jesus. And then I would love to be the one to help you to walk through baptism and to have that sign and symbol placed on your life as well. Uh, Another group that I think has an application for today are unbaptized Christians. Uh, again, I don't know your personal histories. I don't, I, there's no sign that tells me whether you've been dunked or not. Um, but it's an unfortunate category that exists because of wrong emphases in our tradition. And I want to encourage you, if you've never been baptized, if you put your faith in Jesus but you never followed through with this next command that he gives to get baptized, I would encourage you to do that. There's really no good reason not to. And it's a great sign of your initial submission to the Lordship of Christ and a sign that your faith and repentance are real. Uh, For the rest of us, as we wrap up this series on the gospel, I want to remind you that one of the reasons why we're spending time getting it down is because God has called us to be resident aliens with a mission. He's called us to take the gospel to those who do not yet have it. Uh, so by now, you should have a, a few copies of the uh, the note-taking outline. that The bottom has a little summary of the gospel. Remember that? The, the good news. The good news that God is glorious. We are sinful, but Jesus died and rose again in our place. If you repent and believe, you can be forgiven and reconciled to God. I want everybody here in this church to, to take that message. Not necessarily those exact words, but the content of it. I want us all to believe it, I want us all to live as if it is true. And I want us all to share it. Because by faith, we are striving this year to see five people come to faith through our ministry in this church. I'd love for that to happen in the next two months, and then we can get a lot more after that. But this is the essential message of the Christian life. This is what God has done for us. This is what propels us out into mission for others. Let's believe it and live it and share it. Uh, Father, it is a great gift, this gospel, and it is not complicated to receive it. It is only our pride that makes it hard. So I pray that you break down our pride. You break down our desire to have something to pay for what you have offered to us, to have some claim still over our lives. Help us, Jesus, to surrender to you. As we sang earlier, help us to, to, to mean that, to surrender all, all to Jesus we surrender. Lord, give us deep repentance over our sin, um, a saving faith that comes to you for life. And as that life wakens in us, would you fill our hearts to overflowing that streams of living water would flow out of our hearts into the lives of others. In Jesus' name.